We're in Romans chapter 11, and uh, I will get that turned down a little bit. We're in Romans chapter 11 this morning, and I don't know if we'll finish it or not, but uh, we're dealing with the last part of the middle of the book, chapters 9, 10, and 11, and um, we've discussed what does it mean for Israel. Uh, some would say Israel, past, present, and future. Um, it's not that, quite that cut and dried. But the one issue that I think is pretty evident is the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God over all things. And uh, how important that is for us to remember. And um, we dealt in chapter 9, if you remember, with the subject of election, which uh, for some uh, consider that a real hard subject, a subject that they would rather not deal with, but uh, boy, Paul deals with it a lot. He deals with it again today, if you read uh, chapter 11. And then we saw in chapter 10 the issue of um, how that plays out in human history. Because we see in chapter 10 the exercise of human responsibility. And we talked about that. I was just asked about that. And we talked about the two train tracks. And to me, that's still the, the best picture I can come up with of two doctrines of election and of human responsibility and how they, they run parallel. But when you look down the a long line of train tracks, you see them merge, and you think, oh, it looks like they merged together. Uh, how did that work? But when you get there, they're not. They're separate. And uh, uh, I can't give you a good explanation of how the inner working of human responsibility and election is. I've heard a lot of people preach on it uh, without what I'd call very much success. And you read the writings about it, and the reality is they're both doctrines that God has given us. They both are interactive, and uh, God is in control of all things, and just because we can't intellectually piece that together and understand it doesn't mean that God is frustrated by it. He's not. And someday we will have that perfect understanding. I gave the example of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, the, 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 picture, the, the picture of the gate of heaven, and as you're marching towards it as a believer, uh, you see whosoever will may come. And you see the whosoever and the free will of man as you uh, approach that gate. But when you get through and look back, it says elect from the foundation of the earth. So um, they're both doctrines. They both work. It's a doctrine for saved people. It's not a doctrine that we use for evangelism. So we've been through that, and we're going to approach now Romans chapter 11. And uh, let's pray and ask God to bless this time. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the sunshine and even the fog this morning and the kind of mystery that comes with the fog. And, and uh, Lord, we thank you for the bountiful harvest you've given, even in such a dry year. And we know that's a gift from you. <clears throat> we ask now, Lord, that you be with us today and bless this time. We thank you for uh, uh, Brandon and Bree's new baby and ask that you bless them as a family. And, and uh, 
the new baby and that all things would go well uh, in their lives. And we uh, also thank you, Lord, for our church and for the opportunity you give us to gather and fellowship. We thank you for our pastor. We ask that you continue to bless him, draw him close to you as he uh, teaches us and trains us and that we would be responsible church members in participating in the ministry that we have here at Cornerstone. We ask and thank you for this time. We ask that you bless today's lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, Romans chapter 11. If we uh, look back a little bit, there's a couple of statements that uh, uh, I think are really important uh, to the continued uh, doctrinal part of Romans, which when we're done with chapter 11, we're kind of out of the doctrinal part, and then we get into the responsibility part. Uh, what, are we, what are we to do? And uh, there's a reason that Paul is writing this way. He's writing to a Gentile church, but it's a church that... Uh, uh, at one time had a considerable amount of uh, Jewish people in it. I would guess from the beginning after Pentecost it was all Jewish. But then the Jews got chased out of Rome by, by the ruler and became a, an all-Gentile church. And then the Jews slowly returned after some time and uh, participated again in the church. But there were some issues that come with that. And one is... I'm sure from the Jewish standpoint, an understanding of how God could turn to these barbaric Gentiles who were immoral, rude, crude, uh, everything that we would look at and say is, is very ungodly, and that's, that's who the Gentiles were. And the Jews were God's chosen people. And yet now all of a sudden, they see the, 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 the new church, which uh, Jesus uh, predicted, and uh, established here as an institution for this uh, day and time, the age of grace. And uh, they see this church and all these saved Jews to the point where the Jews were getting arrogant, and we'll see that today, and kind of looking at the, at the let's say the Jews, the Gentiles were getting arrogant, and looking at the Jews and kind of like, oh, here, we're, we're now the, the new Israel. You're, you're, you're pushed aside. And so there were issues there. And he slowly builds this to address them. And if you remember back in chapter 1, he gave a very good description of what the Gentiles were in the unsaved life. And it was not pretty. It had dealt with immorality. It dealt with homosexuality. It dealt with all those types of sins that were part of Gentile culture. And if you remember, then in chapter 2, the first verses... But then he also depicts the moral person, which the Jews would have considered them in that category of, of, um, as being moral people. And his conclusion is they're all in the same boat. Whether you're immoral, amoral, or moral, you're all condemned to hell outside of Christ. So he gave a, he, he gave a very apt description there, and he gave a very apt conclusion of what that meant. But now he comes in chapter 9... And as he's, he's he, you know, the, the Jews got to be feeling some sheepish here at this point. And the Gentiles probably were feeling pretty good about themselves in the writing so far. But it comes to chapter 9, he says, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God hasn't failed. The word of God is going to be concluded. And we see throughout these chapters, 9, 10, 11, 
he uses Isaiah a lot as a reference. Today we'll see he uses 1 Kings, he uses Deuteronomy, he uses Isaiah, he uses the book of Psalms. He's going to the Old Testament to demonstrate both to the Gentile and Jew what God's plan has always been. And it has not failed, God is not frustrated, and he does say there, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And we said that's spiritual Israel uh, uh, versus uh, uh, physical Israel. Not all of physical Israel is a part of spiritual Israel. And we're going to see this uh, really, really uh, put forth again today. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant in Jewish history. It's never been all Israel. All Israel was elected as a nation, chosen by God as a nation, but when it comes to the spiritual part, it's always been a small remnant. And it's going to be demonstrated here uh, today in in Romans chapter 11. And then at the end of Romans chapter 10, he he makes a statement, but he says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So, again, he's positioning where Israel is in this whole plan. And he went through a, a, a remarkable plan of salvation. I'll, I'll quit that on chapter 10 because I'm going to get to that later. But he says that they haven't responded. Israel hasn't responded. But he's going to explain now in chapter 11 what that means for everybody else. What does that mean for everybody else when uh, Israel has not responded? So let's take a look here. We will see God's promises, both present and future, for Israel. But there's two statements here in chapter 11, I think, that are kind of the cornerstones, or maybe the bookends is a better description. In verse 2, God says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now there we go again to that, that, that terrible word. And we'll deal with that in a little bit. But God has not, uh, he said, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So his people are who? Whom? It'd be Israel. But the foreknowledge part of it is what really is the center point there. Then you go back uh, to the end of the book um, of chapter, chapter 11, verse 28. And he says in the second part of that, that as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, are you getting sick of hearing about election? (laughs) Uh, I hope not, because right now that should bring, uh, somebody just expressed to me uh, before, uh, to my wife, I guess, the other day at senior luncheon and then before the the, uh, lesson today, that it brought them to a point of tears as we went through the whole issue of election and what that really means for us. And that's how we should be responding. Because if you're here today saved, it's because God chose you. God chose you. And he actually chose you before the world was created. In eternity past. We can't can't fathom that concept. But if you believe the world today, uh, and Wayne can guide us on this, but it's it's pretty much that six to ten thousand year range is what people would would uh, say the world is created. And if you look at that, and then you look at what we're talking about here in in, uh, 57 AD with Paul writing this book about 2,000 years ago, that is a long time to us. I'll I'll be 74 years old here now in a couple weeks, and 
I look back over my adulthood, you know, of, uh, of uh, we got married 54 years ago, <clears throat> and you look at that time, and it seems like a long time when you're going through it day by day, but then you look back at it, and it, it, looked, it, it went pretty fast. The days are, are slow and long sometimes, but the years go fast. Well, now you put that in the mind of God, who's eternal. And you know what? Six to 10,000 years is nothing. It's a very short time in the mind of God. So we've got to understand God's point of view here a little bit and realize that we, we kind of look in very tight circles of time. God doesn't. God doesn't. And so we, we, we realize here that, that God's timing is, uh, is just on, uh, we're incapable of understanding it. So when it regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He's talking about Israel there. <clears throat> so that's kind of the bookends of this, of this uh, section of scripture. So let's get into chapter 11. We're going to read the first 10 verses. And those who want to say Israel past, present, and future, fine, 10 and 11, uh, this is kind of going to destroy that thought process because the first 10 verses of chapter 11 are all Israel present. <laughs> okay? And that's why I think the overall thing here is the sovereignty of God and the overall book we are talking about is, uh, is uh, the gospel, the good news. So Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I and myself... I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now we're talking about 1 Kings here. How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and, seek, and they seek my life. Uh, you know, he's kind of whining here and complaining, but then he's also uh, kind of proud because he alone was left. But what is it God, of God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now there, think of how many, how many men came out of uh, Egypt. Was it a million and a half? Something like that. And that was men. Then if you put women in there, you put kids in there. We don't know how many million, but there was a lot of people that came out of Egypt. Now he's talking men here again, so if we want to use the same application of women and children, along with these men, we're still only talking about maybe 10,000. And he's saying, you know, 20,000, pardon me. So you look at what came out of Egypt, and now you look at what God is telling Elijah that are people of his at this time. It's a pretty small remnant, isn't it? Pretty small remnant of the nation. And he said, I have kept for myself. So too, at the present time, verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now there we're back to grace. That chapter 5 thing, that huge umbrella that I said, we're going to see uh, 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 flushing out all the way through this book, that huge umbrella of grace, and what that all encompasses, and we're right smack dab in the middle of it. <clears throat> But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. Those few in Elijah's day were part of that. But the rest were hardened, as it is written, 
Uh, We're going to get Isaiah, then Deuteronomy, and then uh, after David, it's uh, Psalms. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So here we're seeing Israel, and we're seeing Israel in the present day, in the day of Paul, as well as historically. And he uses, again, Old Testament examples of what he's trying to get at here. Israel stumbled over the rock of offense, chapter 9, verse 33, and willingly turned from God and from God's righteousness in chapter 10, verse 3. They did not seek God's righteousness by faith. They sought the righteousness of the law. They were absolutely attached to the Mosaic law. And in many cases, they completely forgot about uh, their father Abraham, who was long before the Mosaic law. So in verse 1 here, we see Israel has, has, has Israel forfeited the claims to God's promises. Have they forfeited the claims to God's promises? Somebody said something. Say it louder. No. No, exactly. By no means. Now in modern day broader Christendom, what would that answer be? Yes. (laughs) Why? Because the modern day, if we look at the modern day church, the broader view of what we say is Christendom, we, we can go on Pine Island here. You've got the Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church. We had the Assembly of God Church just closed recently. Then you've got the Good News E-Free Church, and you've got uh, Cornerstone Baptist. All of them would claim to be part of Christendom. All of them. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that a little bit later. But if you look in that broad spectrum, even when I was a youth in our Lutheran Church growing up, and you'd hear some of the adults talk, they were always disparaging the Jews. And they viewed themselves as the center of Christianity. And, and Israel and the Jews weren't part of that. Now, I'm not saying that's the case every place, but that's what I grew up with. And so that would be the answer is yes, they believe that. Most believe that the promises that were given to Israel have been transferred now to the church, and the church is the new Israel. And we know that is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And I'm thankful for a church that we, uh, we really, pastor really hammers that point home on a regular basis because that's important for us to understand. Now, does that mean that, that we're to solve all of Israel's issues? No. But we are to support the Jewish people as a whole. And as we'll see here in a minute, we have a responsibility how we walk before them. We have a responsibility to be an exemplary uh, Christian before the unsaved Jews. And he's, he's challenging the people here at Rome that they need to be an exemplary Christian as a Gentile before the saved Jews that they're partners with. Why? Because he's already said it in chapter 10. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, the same Lord overall, is rich on all who call upon him. And then as Nancy was alluding to before the service, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Jew or Gentile. So there's a responsibility there, and we'll get to that. Now, how does Paul use himself as an example here? I think he does it on two fronts. One, to understand the place of the Jew 
in that day, but number two, to understand God is still electing Jews, even in that day and continues to this day. And he says, I myself, in verse two, or for the bottom, second part of verse one, uh, he's an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is the member of the tribe of Benjamin important, do you think? Any thoughts? You know, he's, he's already talked in previous uh, chapters here of uh, uh, something to, alluding to the ten northern tribes and, and how uh, you know, God judged them harshly and dispersed them. And we've got to be careful because sometimes we use the, for, for uh, the southern tri two tribes, when uh, Babylon took them, they didn't disperse them. They took them as a nation into their, into their captivity. And God used that because he wanted to preserve a what? A remnant. Thank you. A remnant. That's so important. He wanted to preserve a remnant. And here, Paul is using himself as an example in the present day church and the present day Israel in 57 AD that he's a what? A part of the remnant. He is a part of that remnant. And the fact that he's of the tribe of Benjamin, I think, has put in there two things. One, Benjamin's the only tribe that stood with Judah. When uh, the ten northern tribes chose to break away and they set up their own, uh, uh, their own altars for worship, and ultimately they, they blended Baal and, uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, God's uh, altars as one, and they blended them together. But Benjamin stayed with Judah. And stayed faithful. Now Benjamin, who, who was the first king? Saul. And he was a what? Benjaminite. He was a Benjaminite. So there's a real history there. And there's others that I won't even get into that uh, were uh, from uh, the tribe of Benjamin. But Benjamin, I think, is listed here. One, that's where Paul came from. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. But they were always respected for the fact that they stood true. And uh, I, I think that's what Paul is alluding to here. Now, was Paul a good candidate as a humble Jew to be saved? No, why not? In 1 Timothy 1, we won't turn there, but he described himself a blasphemer, and he persecuted the Jews, and he was, he was, a, he was a Jew of the Jews, so to speak, a Pharisee, but he was... He, he was the most feared person of his day amongst uh, the Jews, and especially the Christian Jews. So he was not a good candidate. I wasn't a good candidate. You know, I wasn't a good candidate. Why, why did God choose me to be saved? And then you hear some of the people who get saved, like when they're five or six years old, and we had a, a, good, a good friend that we went to a, a faith a Bible church with for seven years before we... Uh, we started going to the Baptist church here, and, and he always told me, he said, yeah, he said, I'm so thankful. I got saved when I was really young. And he said, I just never went through. I hear these people talking about all the sins they go through in their teenage years and their young adult years. He said, I, I never experienced that. And I said, you can praise God for that. You can praise God for that. And so he's a part of the remnant here. He's part of... Uh, what we saw in chapter 10, verse 13, the whosoever, and he's describing himself to these, uh, realizing the Jews are going to view him as understanding who he was, and now saved, the saved Jews. The Gentiles are going to 
understand that, you know what, he's part of the remnant. The promises of Israel are still in effect, so don't throw them out. Now, foreknow in verse 2. He's talking there, I believe, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And I believe he's talking about physical Israel. Not just spiritual Israel there. The nation of Israel was chosen. And they were pre... The word foreknow, I, I went a little further in uh, looking that up because I know there's been some questions on that and people have talked to me about it. But it, it really means... Uh, th this is coming from uh, a Jewish author, Steve Kreloff. Um, and he puts it this way, a predetermined and pre-planned love relationship. Amos 3, uh, 2 said, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, talking to the Jews, as a family. And that love relationship, the, the, the best picture I know of that, of course, would be a marriage relationship, an intimacy that, that takes place between two partners. Now, we know this is not a, a sexual reference, so let's not let our minds even go there. But it is a relationship that is, that is real, that God has produced between Israel and himself. And he foreknew them. He, he predetermined and pre-planned for that love relationship. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're saved, now we're in that same relationship with God. It's a predetermined, pre-planned relationship, not because of how good we were, because he sure wouldn't have chosen me if he was going to choose somebody that was really good. He wouldn't have chosen me. But because God predetermined and pre-planned that, why? Because he wants that relationship with us. He wants that intimacy with us that is present on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis as we walk through life. And that's what he's telling them here. That's what, that's what God did with Israel. He hasn't rejected them. They're, they're, they're a family here for new. And then he gives an example of Elijah that we read, so we're not going to reread it. And Elijah thinking, you know what? I'm the only one left, Lord. You know, just, just take me out of this world. And he said, no. I've got 7,000 uh, men that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. So, no, Elijah, get back to work. And he kept them for himself. Why? Because then he goes on, he says, so too in the present time, in verse 5, there is a remnant that's chosen now by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's what he's, he's pointing out. And then he says in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. And then he goes into the Old Testament scripture of Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalm, describing the hardening of, of Israel's hearts. But he says it again, the elect obtained it. Those who were chosen obtained it. And they responded to the gospel. So, all of physical Israel is in view there. But we will, we will see as we go forward here what that means for Israel, not only present and during the church age, but also in the future in regards to salvation and the existence of a remnant. So let's go on to, to uh, verses um, 11 and on. We've got we to jump ahead here. But remember, they were responding to a law of righteousness, 
not a righteousness that was by faith. That was the issue. That's why their hearts were hardened. So we see a remnant here in these uh, verses 11 through 24, verses the hardened. Now, when a chaplain one time was asked to give the strongest evidence of the Christian faith, what do you think his reply was? The strongest evidence of Christian faith. The Jew. That was his reply. The Jew. Why? Because the, 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 the Jewish people stand as a testimony to God's faithfulness. With all that he went through, as you read the Old Testament, and we went through Hosea, and we'll be going through Micah, and then down the road here, uh, hopefully, Zechariah and, and Haggai, and, and some of those other minor prophets, but you look at those and you say, oh, God, why do you mess around with these people? Just start over with somebody else. Start over with me. <laughs> you know, I'm a good example. No, but that's an example of God's faithfulness to the Jew is probably the best example or best evidence that we can give of the Christian faith. Now, you could say, well, ourselves, because we're, you know, if you're saved, well, your testimony is important. But over the years of time, over the whole existence of, of our world as we know it, uh, God's faithfulness to the Jew is, is just unquestionable. So one of the main purposes of this letter, I believe, uh, was seen in verses 13, 18, and 22. And what are, is that? We'll read a couple of them. He says in verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And then in verse 18 he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. He's, he's giving a caution to the Gentiles here. In verse 22, he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. And he's giving these warnings here to the Gentile people. Why? Because they've, they've kind of puffed themselves up and gotten prideful that they have replaced the Jews in, in, in terms of God's, God's love and affection. They have replaced the Jews. And he's going to give a warning here, and then he's going to describe how they came into this position. So let's, let's, let's look at this. God's purpose was accomplished in, the, in Israel's reje rejection because it opened the door for the Gentiles. Now, Jesus prophesied this in Matthew 24, or 21, verse 43. So did, did the Jews, did, did their fall then bring an abandonment? Did God abandon them? And he says again, no, that's not the case. God has not abandoned the Jews. He has not abandoned them. They are in his plan. And then he's going he's gonna to show here what that plan is. So in verse 5, Paul gave himself as an example, as I said, of that small minority of Jewish people who are still elect and still part of his plan. And God is sovereignly using Israel's fall to bless the world. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in verse 13, but let's go back to verse 11, that's what I meant to do. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now we've seen that before. God's plan for the Gentiles was to make Israel jealous. And that's why I think verses 13 and uh, through 15 here, a part of what he's speaking to the Gentiles about in, is this. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? 
in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And I think here Paul is, is, is demonstrating to us the importance that the Gentiles have, just like he had, that if you're saved and you're a Christian, then you want to walk the life before the Jews. You want to be a prime example to the Jewish people. Now, we have the same thing today. How are we example to the Jewish people? I don't know of any Jewish people or anybody that's got Jewish background here. Maybe you do. If you are, then the rest of us better be an example to you and to any relatives you have that are Jews that you might bring into our midst or we might cross paths with. I worked for a Jewish gentleman when I was uh, uh, young and just early saved um, at, uh, at Montgomery Wards in Rochester. <clears throat> and I thought of him many times because I thought, okay, did I walk in a manner before him that exemplified Christ? I was 20 years old, 19 years old actually when I started. Uh, did I do that? <clears throat> I doubt it. I hope I did, by God's grace, but I doubt it. And, I, you know, I doubt that it was even a thought. I know that wasn't even a thought in my mind. But that's the importance we have as Gentiles. So how do we do it? Well, part of ours is what we do to support the Jerusalem Assembly. Why? Those are saved Jews, and they have that responsibility in Jerusalem to walk uprightly and godly as Christians before the Jewish community, to make them jealous as they see what Christ has done in their life and their needs, what's going on over there right now, <clears throat> hopefully, is going to create an evangelistic outreach for the Jerusalem Assembly and other Christians in that area. That's hopefully what's going to happen. I think that's what Paul is alluding to here. And when he gets to the end here, he says, he says something that, um, that is kind of uh, hard to understand in some ways. He talks about in verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion or full inclusion of full riches, full richness mean? What's that going to look like? Because in verse 15 he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, what does that mean there, life from the dead? Because there's two, there's, two there's two real camps on this issue. Now, Dr. Doug Moo <clears throat> would say that that is alluding to um, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age into Christ's glory. And I have really tried hard to see that. And, I, and, and it's, it's, it may be my, uh, my lack of ability, but I have a hard time seeing that. Now, Steve Kreloff, the Jewish author, and John MacArthur say it relates to the salvation. Ephesians, Paul said what? We are what? Yes, but we're dead in what? Our trespasses and sins. Yes, you're right. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So is he talking here about the acceptance mean 
life from the dead? Well, I think as he goes into the, 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 the tree and the branches and the root and the branches and so on here, I, I believe it's got to mean that. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, and then you're brought to life. That's the way I take it. That's at least the, mo the, the most comfortable way. And I've tried to work my way through how to explain that it means at the end times, the resurrection of all uh, Christians from the dead. And I, I, I can't come up with that. Now, someday pastor will preach through Romans, and then he'll, he'll straighten us out on that point. But for, this, for, for, for now, I'm taking it to mean that they are resurrected to life from the dead when they get saved. Because he goes on, he says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And I want to get through this part for sure. And he's, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the first fruits offering. Now, now we, we go back into the Old Testament scriptures again. And uh, what, he's, what he's addressing, the Mosaic Law in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. And the fact that this, as they would, as they would make a, a loaf of bread, let's say, they would take a piece of that and it was offered to the Lord. How? Well, through the priests. And he is offered to the Lord as a first fruits offering that was then made holy. And what he's saying is, just like that piece was holy, now the whole loaf is holy. So as a part is offered to the Lord, if we look at Israel, that might be the remnant, now the whole is holy. And God still preserves that. And then he goes on, he said, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So where is he headed with that? And it's a symbolic indication of uh, God's love for the whole. But how does that apply to the Gentiles? He's going to, show it, he's going to share, us, uh, share that with us here. Because, let's read this. But if some of the branches, now he's talking about the, 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 the branches of, a, of an olive tree, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, who's he talking to? Pardon? Gentiles. And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root, or another word for that would be the root of richness, that goes back to, to verse number 12, talking about the richness, that's where this, this whole thing starts. The richness of the olive tree do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you were, remember, if you, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches, broken, uh, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They are broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. So he's, he's taken the picture. I don't know. Has anybody here ever grafted something? Eric? Oh, yeah. So he, he's a grafter. What we're looking at here is cultivated olive trees that were harvested for food purposes on the one hand, and then you have the wild olive, which my understanding of that is that's prickly and got needles, and the fruit is not very flavorful at all. 
Now, he's going to go on to say here later on in verse 24, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, because why? Because when you graft that wild olive tree into a, a cultivated olive tree, are you going to get good fruit off that branch? No. You're still going to get the same stuff that you had as a wild olive branch. You're not going to get new fruit off that. But by God's doing, that's what he's doing for us Gentiles. So we have these branches. Let's say we have ten branches. And I can't bend my fingers very well. So all of a sudden, out of the ten, there's eight of them are cut off. Because they're Jews that reject the gospel. So now they're part of Israel, but they're cut off. And God takes eight branches off of the wild olive tree and grafts them back in. Now who's the root? Who's the root of the olive tree? Israel. But let's go back to the beginning. Abraham. Abraham would be the root of the olive tree. That's who the unconditional covenant was made by God with. It's Abraham. He is the father of the Israelites. He's the root that this all comes from. But then as the tree comes out of the ground and starts to grow and the branches go out, now we see all of Israel. So we're talking about millions and millions of branches that are part of this tree in this visual example and God is saying, as I cut the unbelieving Israel off, I'm grafting in the believing Gentile. That's you. You are not the root. <laughs> you are just saved by grace. By God's love. That should, it just gives me chills when I think of it. It just, just the fact that God will love us and graft us in. And when he grafts us in, guess what? Miraculously, we have the ability to produce the same fruit as believe in Israel. So this Roman church of, of broad Gentile uh, membership, and Paul comes along and uses himself as an example of one of the branches that God chose to spare and not cut off. But you all in this church, and we could say all of us here, we're grafted into that by God, through salvation, so that we are equal. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And remember, he gave the order there. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him whom they have not heard? How can they hear without a messenger? How can they be a messenger except they be sent? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. My favorite portion of scripture, verses 9 through 17 there. Read those. It's, a, it's, just, it's just wonderful to see how that fits in with what he's talking about here with the olive tree. And we are grafted in. So let's finish this part up. Since Israel is rooted in the covenant promised to Abraham, then the nation is set apart for God's purposes. Physical Israel. But in verses 17 through 21 we see the Gentiles are grafted in. And we are the wild olive branch, wild olive shoot that is grafted into uh, the olive tree. Let's finish up reading here. We'll go to verse uh, 22. No, let's go to verse 23. 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So now he's talking about future Israel. And the time is going to come where they're grafted in again. Now when's that going to happen? Well, we saw earlier there, we don't want to go back to it, reference to the millennial kingdom. And I believe that's what he's aiming for here with the Jews. Because when the... Don't forget... The tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel. It's for the Jews. The Gentiles are there, just like this is for the Gentiles. We're in the age of the Gentiles, and the Jews are here. But it's for the Gentiles. So the church is gone. And God is not working through the church in the tribulation. He's working through the Jews. He, he, he saves to himself what 144,000, call them evangelists, that he protects during the tribulation time, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 that are kept apart by God. pastor will be doing, dealing with that when he goes through Revelation. And he does that in that tribulation time. But at the end, when the whole world is against, is against Israel, what happens? We see Israel turns to God. Many of them are slaughtered, we know that. They turn to God. They now... God is going to now put them back in, graft them back in. Only they're going to come back as natural branches, not wild roots, not wild olive shoots. They're going to come back in as natural branches. Just a marvelous thing when you think about that. So he says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, verse 24, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? That is that term again. He uses that every once in a while. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's finish up these next few verses. We're just going to read through them and make quick comments. Um, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What's the mystery in the Bible? Something that before has never been revealed, and now it's been revealed. The church was a mystery. It was never seen in the Old Testament. But Jesus, Jesus brought the church to life with his death on the cross. That was a mystery in times past, and now it's here. Well, here again he says, this is a mystery, brethren. A partial hardening has been come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe the full of the Gentiles takes place with the rapture when we're taken out of this world because then it returns to uh, a Jewish situation, the 70th week of Daniel. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, he's talking there about all Israel, corporate Israel, but it'll still only be the remnant or elect. It's just that it's going to be a broader uh, base of them. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And I believe that's the Jews who come out of the tribulation and exit into the millennial kingdom. As regards the gospel, they, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That goes back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through. They are beloved, and they are elect. <clears throat> okay, let's stop there.
And we'll pick it up on, on verse uh, 28 uh, next week, okay? And we're going to leave the doctrinal side, and we're going to go into some of the practical application for you and 